Now, if you would, please take your Bibles and open them up and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of Titus. To Titus chapter number 1. Today we're going to tackle a subject that's very controversial and very emotionally charged. And that is the topic and the controversy regarding same-sex sexual relationships. We're going to do a two-part series of messages on this that I have entitled The Same-Sex Controversy. And there's just a lot of fog out there in our culture today about the same-sex controversy. Now, some of you might be saying, why are we even talking about this? Why are we taking time to discuss this? Well, unless your eyes have been closed or you've been asleep like Rip Van Winkle, uh, you would have missed the fact that there has been a rise in a growing acceptance of homosexuality in our culture. It's been coming into our living rooms on a regular basis through our television sets, through programs like Will and Grace and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Uh, this has been a, a cause of great division in mainline denominational churches in our country. In fact, my friend John Yates, who is the rector at the historic Falls Church in Falls Church, Virginia, was just telling me about the tremendous frustration and tremendous amount of pain that they have been going through as this subject matter gets addressed. And the same-sex controversy has found its way squarely into the evangelical church. Just even in recent times, you might remember some three months ago when the Reverend Ted Haggard who pastors a church or was pastoring a church of 14,000 plus in Colorado Springs, Colorado, also president of the National Association of Evangelicals representing 45,000 evangelical churches in America, a married guy who was caught in a same-sex relationship. And then one month later, the Reverend Paul Barnes, who is pastor of a 2,000 plus member church in the Denver area, also married and then it came to light there were multiple men that he had had sexual relationships with. And I am aware of another evangelical church in another state where two of the staff pastors of that church have been struggling with same-sex attractions. So this is a controversy that needs to be faced. And I am, believe me, all too aware that when this controversy gets faced, that there's a great possibility that we can be stereotyped and we can be labeled and we can be attacked. We might be called homophobic. You know, that's an interesting word that has an aroma to it of some sort of psychiatric disorder. If you look at this with a critical eye, you're homophobic. Or we might be labeled intolerant. You know, I believe that you can still love someone and not be tolerant of certain things in their life. In fact, that's true of God, right? Because God loves the world, but He does not tolerate our sin. We could be labeled as being out of touch, being outdated and outmoded and just being old-fashioned. And I want to be very transparent with you today, just to be real with you. Emotionally, emotionally, there is in me a reluctance and a resistance 
to want to tackle this subject of the same-sex controversy. I really emotionally would like to avoid it. But my overall concern really is not so much what I may feel or think or what even people may think or even really what you may think. My primary concern is reflected in a plaque that I have in my office over my credenza and that plaque says this, what does God think about it. And part of my job is to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Many, many years ago, Martin Luther made a statement that I think is very apropos to this whole same-sex controversy. He said this, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. And then he made this statement. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is tested. Now as we raise the subject matter of the same-sex controversy, I want you to know that there are different categories of church reactions to the same-sex controversy. And for Wildwood, I don't want us to be a permissive church. In the permissive church, you have the church winking at what God says is wrong. Also, I do not want Wildwood to be a judgmental church. In a judgmental church, there is a a stance where they slam people without compassion. I also do not want Wildwood to be an indifferent church. In the indifferent church, the attitude is, we don't want to get involved in this. Let's just not talk about this. Let's not get involved. Rather, I would like Wildwood to be a healing church. Church And in a healing church, all sin is sin. And yet God's grace is able to transform hearts. And as we tackle the same-sex controversy, I want you to know that over the years, I have had personal friends who struggled with same-gender attraction. I could take you back to my high school years, And I can track you all the way through my life to this very day. I have had friends who have struggled with this. I have had someone not too very long ago in my office who came to me and said, well, you know, it might be a surprise to you, but uh, I want you to know I struggle with this same gender attraction. And I said, not really. I, I pretty well already had it figured out. But they sat there saying to me, you know, what am I going to do about this? How do I understand this? How do I process this? And I want you to know, simply because we are a cross-section of the culture today, there are people here this morning in this group who, if truth be told, struggle with same-gender attraction issues. And so we are going to talk about this same-sex controversy. And here's the plan that we have. We're going to do two messages on this. First of all, we want to look at the heart of the controversy. And then secondly, we want to look at issues and perils in the controversy. 
What we're going to do this week is look at the heart of the controversy. Next week, we will look at issues and perils in the controversy. And when I talk about looking at the heart of the controversy, what I'm talking about is looking at what God has to say about this subject matter. Now, before we move into that, and we're going to do quite a bit of Bible study today, I just want you to know a little bit about my heart in all of this. In John chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus is described as being full of grace and truth. And that's exactly the way that I want to be as we tackle this same-sex controversy. I want it to be measured with grace, and I also want to be able to speak the truth in love. Because I believe that we can address those who have same gender attraction issues without contempt for them, without disdain, without disrespect, without demeaning anybody, and certainly without hating them. You know, sometimes men and women, I think we lose sight of what we're called to be in the culture and in the world today. Do you know Jesus called us to be the salt of the earth. That means we are to be the preserver of God's standards of truth in our culture. We are also called to be light. We are to guide people on the way of righteousness and to guide them into the abundant life. And so that's what we want to do. Today we want to look at what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. And here's what I need you to do. I need you to take your little Bible study cap, put it on. I need you to roll up your sleeves because we are going to do some Bible study today. We want to address this growing fog in our culture. It is just more common than it has ever been for ideas to be promoted that would say, Homosexuality is a morally acceptable belief. It's becoming more and more common for people to say the Bible, when it's rightly understood and rightly translated, does not label homosexuality and homosexual activity as wrong. That's becoming more and more common. It's becoming more common for people to say that homosexuality is compatible with Scripture. In fact, Practicing it doesn't even disqualify you from spiritual leadership. And if you doubt me in any of those things, you just simply need to do more reading. Even evangelical leaders today are fudging on this. For example, Chuck Smith Jr. has publicly declared that he is no longer certain that the Bible condemns homosexuality. I need to investigate more thoroughly, says Chuck Smith Jr., pastor of Calvary Chapel, Capistrano Beach in Southern California, when he was asked about biblical references to homosexuality. Departing radically from his father's orthodox views, Smith Jr. also condones gay adoption and affirms that gay and Christian aren't contradictory. If you have your Bible open to Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, I want you to see what my aim is for our time together today. 
Paul points out that the spiritual leader is to be, in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. We are going to live that verse out today. That is our aim, to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, to be able to exhort in sound doctrine, sound teaching, and to refute those who contradict. So if you're ready for some Bible study, here we go. Now one of the things we cannot do is we cannot cover every passage in the Bible that someone attempts to use in some way, shape, or form to justify homosexuality. But we are going to look at some key core passages. We're going to look at two in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a couple of passages that relate to Jesus. And then we're going to look at two passages in the New Testament. So that is our plan. Are you ready to go? We've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's begin by turning in the Old Testament to the, the book of Genesis and chapter number 19 in the book of Genesis. So turn with me to Genesis chapter number 19. For those of you who may not remember, what's happening is the locality in Genesis 19 is the city of Sodom. And Lot lives in Sodom, and two angels have come in the form of men to visit Lot. And you'll notice, beginning in verse 4, before they all were to bed down for the night, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, Lot's house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway, and he shut the door behind him, and he said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you, and do to them whatever you like, only do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. And the men of Sodom said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in, speaking of Lot, as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. And so they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. And if you know how the story goes, the angels stepped up and, and blinded all the men of Sodom and basically uh, put an end to this particular episode. Now, how have we traditionally understood what's going on here? What's been the tradition of understanding of interpreting Genesis 19? And tradition has said for many generations that this is a description of pervasive homosexual practices. Therefore, God is pointing out that it is wrong. Now, I want you to know that the revisionists of today step forward and they attempt to disarm this passage. And they attempt to do it three different ways. And we're going to just give you those ways, then we're going to go back and look at them. One way they attempt to disarm this passage is they say, well, wait a minute, now you have to look at verse 5, when it said, bring them out to us that we may, the New American Standard says, have relationships with them. And they would say, wait a minute, that is just no more than the Hebrew word yada. And yada means to know. And it can mean carnal knowledge, but it usually just means to know. 
And so they would say, they weren't talking about getting involved sexually here. They just wanted to have a social mixer, don't you know, with these two angels. They just wanted to have them come out and they'd exchange email addresses. Or another way they attempted to disarm the passage is they would say, this isn't really addressing homosexuality. No, this is addressing rape. I'm not saying homosexuality is wrong, just that rape is wrong. Or another way they would disarm the passage is they would go to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, where it gives some other reasons for Sodom's judgment by God, and they would say, see, the real problem was that they were inhospitable in Sodom. They didn't help the poor, they didn't help the needy. It's really not judgment because of homosexuality. So let's look at those three attempts to disarm this particular passage. Now it's true in verse 5 that the word yada is used here. But how would you ever determine the meaning of any word, what it should be, in a particular place? How do you do that? If I were to use the word in English, trunk, of what am I speaking? You need to know the context in order to understand what trunk I'm talking about. And the same thing is true with the word yada. While it sometimes just means to know someone, it also can mean to know them in the most intimate sense possible. And it certainly seems like there's a whole lot more going on here than people who want to have a social mixer with new people. I mean, look at verse 7 when he says, My brothers, do not act wickedly. I mean, this is more than just wanting to know them. And also, it's really interesting to me that Lot very clearly got the idea that sex was on the mind of these men. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done what he did in verse 8. When he says, listen, don't take these angelic beings and get involved sexually with them. I, I, it's not good, but I'd rather you took my two daughters. So he was definitely reading that they had sex in mind. And then another thing that's kind of interesting to me is when you try to put some meaning to yada, to know, um, usually another near use of the word gives you a clue to how the word ought to be translated and, and that's exactly what happens because he says, I want you to, to take my two daughters who have not yada a man. Um, they have not had intimate carnal knowledge with a man. It seems very clear that this is beyond just we want to get to know them. In fact, in, in verse 2, it's kind of interesting because they, they come, and here's what Lot says to them. I want you to come over. Uh, you can stay over but I want you to get up early in the morning and get out of town. In fact, it's interesting, the angels knowing what's going on, they even say at one point, we want to stay in the town square. No, 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 no. You don't want to do that. Because he understood the presence of homosexual practices in Sodom. Now, another way they disarm the passage is they say, well, this is dealing with, with rape, um, not homosexuality. Well, yes, there is the threat of rape here, but also there's very clearly homosexual activity is involved in Sodom, and God doesn't look on that very positively. Keep your finger in Genesis 19. I want you to go all the way to the other end of your Bible, to the book of Jude. 
right in front of the book of the Revelation, and I want you to look at Jude verse 7 because there's a commentary in the New Testament back on this event. And I want you to see what Jude 7 says. It talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulged in gross immorality. It's the word for sexual immorality. And notice it says, what, the, what was their problem? They went after strange flesh. Now, that word strange doesn't mean people they hadn't met before. That word strange is the word in Greek heteros, H-E-T-E-R-A-S. Heteros means something of a different kind. They went after a different kind of flesh rather than males pursuing female flesh, which was God's design, male and female. They went after a different kind of flesh, males going after males. And even if you, if you track your way through the book of Genesis, it's kind of interesting as you go back to Genesis 19, the phrases that keep coming up, in Genesis 13, 13, it says, the men of Sodom acted exceeding wickedly. Not the people, the men. And in Genesis 19, 4, it says, the men of the city, both young and old, and those from every economic level, came. Indeed, homosexuality is a key part of what God said was wrong with Sodom. And again, another way that they attempt to disarm this is to go to Ezekiel 16.49 when it looks back on it and it says God judged Sodom and it mentions the fact that they hadn't met the needs of the poor and the needy. And they say, see, the homosexuality wasn't even an issue. No, listen, what was happening in Sodom was a complex of wickedness. Homosexuality was part of it, not all of it. And that's all Ezekiel 16 is really communicating. Now, before we even go on in our Bible study, I want to emphasize something, and that is I want to differentiate between same-gender attraction or feelings and same-gender sexual acts or actions. They are different same-gender attraction and feelings is different from same-gender sexual acts and actions. It is the second one that Scripture strongly confronts. Scripture strongly confronts same-gender sexual acts and actions. We're going to talk more about the differentiation of those next week. second passage we want to look at is in the third book of the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, chapter number 18 verse 22 and chapter number 20 and verse 13. So hang in there with me. We've got a lot to look at. Chapter 18, verse 22 says, God says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. A male should not lie with a male. It is an abomination. And then if you'll notice chapter 20 and verse 13 says something very similar. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who would lie with a woman, 
both of those males have committed a detestable act and they shall surely be put to death. That's how strongly God felt about it. Now what's the traditional understanding, the traditional interpretation of Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20? Well, traditionally, interpreters have seen this as God saying the act of homosexual sex is wrong. Now again, the revisionists step up to the plate and they want to disarm these two passages. And so they will say one of two things. One of the things they say is, you notice in in, uh, chapter 18 there, in verse 22, it says that such a thing is an abomination. And a lot of times what they'll say is abomination is a word that was used to describe idolatry practices. And so what this really is is not a prohibition against homosexual activity in general. It is a prohibition against temple-based prostitution, homosexual prostitution in pagan temples. That's what Leviticus 18 is talking about. Or they might disarm the passage by saying this. This is the Old Testament law. We're not under law. We're under grace. I mean, we don't follow the restrictions in the Old Testament law related to eating pork. Those things are not binding on us today. Neither would be these passages binding on us. So let's take a look at those two uh, attempts to disarm these passages. First of all, let's look again at this idea of abomination. Abomination always, they say, points to idolatry. It's just not true. It's just not a true statement. Sometimes God describes idolatrous practices as an abomination, but he uses the word abomination to describe a lot of different things. For example, you might jot down Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 to 19, when God says, there are six things that I hate, yes, seven that are an abomination to me. And none of those have anything to do with idolatry practices. Among them are a lying tongue. God says, that's an abomination to me. Or the one who spreads strife among brothers, that's an abomination to me. And so this idea that it's only talking about homosexuality in a pagan temple environment just doesn't fit. You know, it's really interesting to me when you go back and you look at the context here, the context also forbids a number of other things. In chapter 18, verse 9, it forbids incest. In verse 20, it forbids adultery. In verse 21, it forbids child sacrifice. In verse 23, it forbids bestiality. And if we are consistent in interpreting the way that those who want to revise this want to do, then we would say all of those things are wrong only when they happen in idolatry and in a pagan temple. But who wants to really say that? I mean, that incest is only wrong if it occurs in an idolatrous practice in a pagan temple. Child sacrifice is only wrong then. It just doesn't fit at all. Now remember, the second approach to these two passages is to say these things aren't binding anymore. We don't have to pay attention to what they say. And it's true that some of the law is no longer binding on us. You know, a lot of the Old Testament law 
gave us all these guidelines for the sacrificial system. You remember that? We no longer need that because the one sacrifice has been made in Jesus Christ. There were a number of laws in the ceremonial portion of the Old Testament law. But much of the Old Testament law was moral law, and some of that moral law very clearly transcends from the Old Testament era all the way into the New Covenant era in which we live. And that law is affirmed in the New Testament. For example, the prohibition against adultery, part of the Old Testament moral law, is affirmed in the New Testament. The prohibition against homosexuality, which is part of the Old Testament law, as we're going to see, is also affirmed in the New Testament. How does God feel about a male lying with a male in the practice of homosexuality? Well, if you notice in chapter 18, verse 24, this is what God says. All the nations that practice these things, God says, I view as a defiled nation. Now that's a quick look at some of the Old Testament passages. Again, we can't cover everything. But I want to turn to the Gospels for just a moment and invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 19. Here's what the revisionists often will say about Jesus. They will say, do you know that Jesus never mentions homosexuality? Never one time does Jesus mention homosexuality. Therefore, he thought homosexuality was fine. Now that's some pretty poor logic. Do you know that Jesus never mentions child abuse either? Does that mean, therefore... That Jesus feels that child abuse is okay? Just bad logic. What's really important, you see this several times in the Gospels, is that Jesus emphasizes that God is the one who created humanity. God is the one who created marriage. God is the one who created sex. And God made them male, and God made them female. And he said the plan of coming together is that the male would leave his family, the female would leave her family, and they would come and become glued together. Jesus made very clear statements that male on male and female on female is not part of the plan of God. And it always gets to me when people say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about. Yeah, but Paul said something about this subject matter. And where is our whole doctrine of all Scripture is inspired of God? All Scripture is really the expression of the Spirit of God. Whether Jesus said it or whether Paul said it, they are equal. Very important to understand. Now in Matthew chapter 19, I just want you to see very quickly, this is some of what goes on. Sometimes this just totally surprises me. Matthew 19, verse 12, this is a passage that sometimes is used to show that, that Jesus was very positive about homosexuality. Jesus says this in verse 12, There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. And so some say, see, he's talking about here homosexuals. That's what he means by eunuchs, they would say. And you just need to accept that. Well, that's, pretty, that's a pretty convoluted uh, stance to take. Um, because the word eunuch is not describing a homosexual. 
the word eunuch means someone who was born without reproductive organs or they had their reproductive organs castrated. That's what a eunuch is. And if you keep that in mind, just reread the verse. For are those who are without reproductive organs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are those without reproductive organs who were made that way by other men. And there are also those without reproductive organs who made themselves that way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This verse has got nothing whatsoever to do with homosexuality. Now I want you to see one other passage that is sometimes used, and that's in chapter 8 of Matthew and verses 5 to 7. And again, we're, we're covering all this simply because I want to alert you to what's going on. I want you to alert you to the revisionist interpretations that are out there. And I want you to be surprised. But in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, Jesus comes into Capernaum and there's a centurion there, a commander of a hundred soldiers, and he comes to Jesus and he implores Jesus and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. Now where does the revision come in? Well, the revision comes in and they say, do you know what word is translated here? Servant, in verse 6. They say it's the word in the original, pais, P-A-I-S. And they say the word pais really means male lover. And they say what's happening is the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, my pais, my male lover, is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus says to him, well, I'm going to come and heal him. They say, Jesus never even said anything about the fact he had a male lover at home. <laughs> I'm telling you, sometimes I'm surprised at what people come up with. I mean, if that isn't sexualizing a passage that has no sex involved, it, it, I've never seen one. The word pais in the original can be translated son, it can be translated child, it can be translated young servant. It's not a word that points to a male lover. In fact, there's no hint anywhere in this whole exchange of anything sexual. In fact, there were more common terms that could be used in Greek for a homosexual lover. A few of the passages that are used related to Jesus. Now we want to turn to two in the New Testament as we continue on. Are you hanging in there with me? Are you doing all right? Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at one of the key passages in the New Testament, which is written by the Apostle Paul. And I want you to know something. Paul has been unfairly targeted for criticism by many in the homosexual movement. But what I find interesting is that Paul, many people say that he's homophobic, he's out of control. Listen, he never, if you read carefully what Paul writes, he never fixates on homosexuality. In fact, he never really isolates homosexuality. He, he, when he mentions homosexuality, it comes up in a list, a whole list of unacceptable behaviors. In fact, in Romans 1, there are 24 sins that are mentioned. Homosexuality is just one of those. Paul does not 
mention homosexuality any more frequently than he mentions adultery. But the passage we want to look at here in chapter 1 is verses 24 to 27. Because Paul writes, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And this, for this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, should it be any surprise, as clear as that may seem to us, that the revisionists step forward and they say, but wait a minute, let us disarm this passage. And they tend to do that one of three ways. And again, we'll just give them to you and then we'll look at them. One way they attempt to disarm it is to go back to that idolatry argument again from the Old Testament. Because they say in verse 23 and verse 25, there's implications here of idolatry. This isn't saying that all homosexuality is wrong. It's only talking about homosexuality that's connected with idolatry and the pagan temples would be wrong. Or another very interesting way that they attempt to disarm Romans chapter 1 is this. They say this isn't really confronting homosexuals. This is instead confronting heterosexuals who by their nature are heterosexual, but they're doing homosexual acts. They've started to be bisexual, and Paul's saying, no, homosexuality is unnatural to a heterosexual. That's what Paul is saying is wrong. Or another way that they've attempted to disarm this passage is they would say that Paul is confronting lust-based homosexuality. He's not... He's not He's not here attacking committed homosexual relationships, just lust-based homosexuality. So again, let's look very quickly at uh, all three of those attempts to disarm the passage. Let's go back to that idolatry thing again. And all I would say is there are 23 other sins prohibited and labeled by God as wrong here. And are we saying that all of those sins are only wrong when they're actually practiced in some pagan temple somewhere? No, go read through the list. He's saying these things are wrong, wherever they may happen. The second approach that they say is they say, well, this is really con confronting heterosexuals who are doing homosexual acts. And if that is a completely convoluted, totally convoluted interpretation... If your eyes will go down to verses 26 and 27 here, I want you to understand that the terms here that are translated men and women in these verses are in the original language, the biological terms for male and female. Let me reword, reread the verses this way. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their females exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also, the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire towards one another, males with males committing indecent acts. This is talking about homosexuality. And the natural thing, when he says it wasn't natural, he's going back to God's creation. 
You know, God created us as male and female, and God created marriage, and God created sex. And what he said was, the natural thing is that a male should get together with a female rather than male to male and female to female. I mean, nature demonstrates, if you just think about it for a moment, that the male and the female, by God's design, go together just the right way. That's what he means by natural. As I stated, uh, some people like to say, well, what he's really talking about here and prohibiting is lust-based homosexuality, not committed relationships. He's saying committed relationships are fine. Where do you find that? I mean, where is that here? There's no mention of having multiple partners, no mention of committed relationships. Rather, what he's talking about is the act itself of a male and a male getting involved sexually and a female and a female getting involved sexually. What he's really saying here and he's describing here is that people who have this same-sex attraction, that attraction goes out of control and they act on it, they act out on it, and it results in sinful behavior, what Paul describes as indecent acts. Now one other passage we want to look at that's related to this whole subject matter and the controversies is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10. Let me just read those verses to you. Paul is writing and he, gives, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 9 of chapter 6. Do not be deceived. And then you'll notice there's a list here again. Neither fornicators, those who have sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. Notice there's a whole list of things here. Nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's what the revisionists want to say, because that seems to be fairly plain that God says that homosexuality is wrong. Well, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have to look, they'll say, at that last word in verse 9. The word that the New American Standard translates homosexual or the NIV would translate homosexual offenders. What they say is that word doesn't mean homosexuality in general. They say that word only refers to same-sex prostitution. Same-sex prostitution is what Paul is saying is wrong, not homosexuality in general. Now you hear that and you may think, gosh, I didn't know that. Well, well, let's just take a little closer look at this. The word that is translated, that very last term in the verse there, verse 9, is the word arsena koite in the original. A-R-S-E-N-O-K-O-I-T-E. It's a compound word that comes from two words, arsenos and the word koite. Arsenos is the word for males. Koite is the word for sexual bed. The word means males in the sexual bed together. Interestingly, it's the exact same word that is used back in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. God's saying, you want to know what's wrong? What's wrong is when you have males together in the sexual 
bed. There's nothing in this word that has any implication of buying sex or selling sex. In fact, if you go to the Greek lexicons, go to the Greek lexicons and look up the word arsenikoite, and what you're going to find repeatedly is they're very clear on what the word means. In fact, the translators understand what the word means. That's why the New American Standard translates arsenicoite homosexuals, why the NIV translates it homosexual offenders, while the New King James Version translates it sodomites, why the English Standard Version translates it those who practice homosexuality, why the Net Bible translates it practicing homosexuals. Paul says... God says those things are wrong. Now again, I, I want to make it very clear. Paul is not saying that same gender attraction, same gender feelings is sin. He's not saying that. He's saying that committing homosexual acts, acting out on those attractions is sin. Now, if you would, turn a few pages to the right to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 because I, I just simply want you to understand my heart. Another passage that gives you a glimpse of my heart in all of this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. This is the heart of where I'm coming from. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. See, that's the heart, really, of where I'm coming from today. I'm not here to be quarrelsome. I want to, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition with the idea that perhaps God might grant to them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth of what the Bible has to say and that they may come to their senses and escape from what I believe is a snare of the devil in him holding them captive to do his will. Listen, homosexual activity is potentially very harmful and therefore to remain silent on it is wrong. If we had a down power line out here in the parking lot that still had power, electrical power, and it was just sort of bouncing around, flopping around, it would be wrong for us not to say, wait a minute, you need to be very careful. And you know what's interesting is that all of us, all of us, every single person here today is a sexual being. And God created sex. Now, what has mankind tended to do with sex? Mankind has frequently distorted it. But every one of us are sexual beings, and all of us are sinners. Every one of us. We're all vulnerable people to sin. And all of us have to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the good news is that there's hope of being transformed in fact, in, in chapter 6, back where we looked at verses 9 and 10, it says in verse 11, as it made that list of those various kinds of sins, it says, and such were some of you. Such were some of us. 
but we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified and declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Men and women, there are many in the gay community who are hurting. And they are acting out over their pain. Many of them have experienced abandonment and emotional isolation. They've experienced mistreatment. Some of them have experienced molestation in their life. There are many who are struggling with same gender attraction, who are confused. I've spoken with them. They are experiencing fear and uncertainty. They would love to have somebody to talk to. And yet they feel a need to keep their desires shrouded in secrecy. Many of them are without hope. They feel that the homosexual lifestyle is inevitable and it is impossible to change. But I want to quote you the words of one woman who came out of the homosexual lifestyle. She said this, If you asked me a year ago if I could come out of the gay movement, it would have been equivalent to asking me to move this building. Impossible. And yet God showed her victory. Men and women, the issue is not the greatness of our sin. The issue is the greatness of the power of God. Remember, Paul said that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. We're going to look more deeply into this controversy next week as we look at the issues and the perils of the controversy. But what I want to do this morning is I want to close with a passage of scripture from the book of Isaiah chapter 55 verses 6 and 7 and you know what this is a verse for everyone that's seated here today this is a verse for me Isaiah writes seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, for he will abundantly pardon. Men and women, that's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for speaking clearly on this issue, and we know we haven't even addressed everything that's involved with this controversy. But Lord, we thank you for your word that is abundantly clear. We thank you that you are a God who brings hope and who brings change and brings power to our life. And we know when we come to you with our sin, no matter what flavor it will be, that you will have compassion on us and you will abundantly pardon as you have promised. And we thank you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.